Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Partly cloudy skies. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Former CIA director John Brennan is telling as much as he can in a new book. It's called Undaunted, My Fight Against America's Enemies at Home and Abroad. Working for six presidents, three Republicans, three Democrats, I had tremendous respect for all of them. And I didn't always agree with their policies, but they approached the job with great seriousness. I don't see that in Donald Trump. That conversation coming up in just a moment. But first, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in an updated guidance yesterday contends COVID-19 can be spread by airborne transmission to people farther than six feet away. The CDC says these transmissions have happened in enclosed, poorly ventilated areas where people were breathing heavily, like while singing or exercising. In some cases, the spread occurred even after an infected person left the space. Still, the CDC says data show it's much more common for the coronavirus to be spread through close contact with someone. Now, as for the latest figures from the Georgia Department of Public Health, well, it shows newly confirmed COVID-19 cases are up slightly from one week ago. As of right now, 323,714 COVID-19 cases have been confirmed here in the state. Still, active hospitalizations are on the decline. That means 28,987 so far have been hospitalized, and of those, 5,370 were ICU admissions. Fulton, Gwinnett, and Cobb remain the top three counties for cases, and in total, 7,192 deaths have been recorded since March. All of this, as always, is according to the State Department of Public Health. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Thousands of comments and at one point more than 1,500 watched last night's Atlanta Board of Education meeting online. The board was presented with the district's reopening plan that would include in-class instruction later this month. The board has also been hearing from the community, those in favor and against students returning to the classroom. But no decision has been finalized. There's a lot more to do before the target date of October 26th. And joining me now to talk about all of this is APS Superintendent Dr. Lisa Herring. Welcome back to the program. Thank you, Rose. It's a pleasure to be back. The last time we spoke, you talked about understanding, not just as a superintendent, but as a parent, concerns about the kids. And as an educator, you could understand their concerns. You heard quite a bit last night. What was your takeaway? Well, the takeaway still stands in that we are in a space that none of us have ever existed before in making decisions relative to educating children during a global pandemic. I'm still that same person with a very significant responsibility to help execute decisions that will allow for us to continue teaching and learning in environments that are still safe, um, with thinking first of our students and staff throughout the process. 
Um, and I also recognize that there are different positions across our city, quite candidly, Rose, across the country. I've talked to superintendent peers across the country, similar, if not almost identical circumstances, a cohort a record, or a voice of families that are adamant about wanting to be fully face-to-face -face every day. And uh, another voice that says, please let us remain virtual until further notice going into 2021. Superintendent Herring, before we dissect this plan, are you being pressured to reopen the schools? There are external pressures. I have to be honest to acknowledge that they exist. Do they influence and pressure the final decision? Well, I have to be steadfast in what's right and safe for our children and for our staff. Uh, as I shared last night at the dais, I recognize the voices. As a public servant, we can't turn away from what we hear and see in our stakeholder community. And so I have to acknowledge that, but I have this humongous responsibility to make decisions that are carefully executed. And whether there is patience or impatience, we have to think first around what will allow for us to, first of all, honor the data and the science around the safe environment. And then secondly, phase that in such a way that we don't create an unintended consequence that puts us in a, at high risk. Are you being pressured by groups outside of the APS community other than parents and educators? Do you feel like you are being pressured by anyone else? No, no. I, if I, and to be even more candid, the vast majority of those individuals, those being whether they are educators uh, outside of this system or just um, partners, stakeholders, uh, corporate, political, otherwise, not at all. I think that um, the, if there are positions, they haven't shared them in a way of influencing a decision. Um, the most frequented encounter that I get outside of the voices that are um, parents who, or teachers who've expressed what they would like um, has been support uh, relative to the understanding that this is an unusual uh, circumstance where superintendents like myself have to render decisions given the level of guidance that we've received at higher positions. And so that puts a lot of uh, decision making in our lap. Well, let's talk about what is guiding all of this. Every superintendent that comes on this program and obviously has said this, we're following the science and the data. You look at APS schools, mostly concentrated, obviously, in Fulton County. Black and brown children and families hardest hit by the coronavirus. So the science is what you are relying on and the data as it relates to this virus, not just in Georgia, but in the county. Is that what you're paying attention to? Yes, ma'am. Uh, Department of Public Health data. Uh, we've also been very intentional around adhering to the risk, risk guidance for the Center of Disease Controls. We've said this from day one back in July, even until now, and back in July when the numbers were much higher than they are now, that in order to even consider what we're articulating, um, a phase two, then the, the county needs to be in what's called moderate spread, not substantial. Uh, the numbers have been trending downward. That's thus the conversation, and I try to, to articulate that. This conversation and this exploration of what uh, a hybrid or phase two would look like is complementary to the fact that we are now hovering around a 100 uh, uh, new cases uh, for 14 days per 100,000 uh, uh, for, for a population of 100,000. That's how the data is determined. Uh, we fluctuated somewhere between 98 to 100, but to be in moderate spread to entertain uh, this type of model, uh, we need to be under 100. Uh, here's a, and it's, it's fluid. Friday, Fulton County was under 100, we were at 98. 
Mm -hmm. And today, uh, or yesterday, at last check, we were at 101. So you see, it's 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 moving. Are you also paying attention to certain pockets? Because it's one thing to look at the county as a whole, but then if you want to look at individual zip codes and pockets, and particularly where a large majority of your APS students live in these communities that are already stressed with other socioeconomic burdens, are you looking at that data as well? We are. We have to, uh, Rose. We're also looking at the data relative to pediatric cases that have been uh, um, case positive uh, and, and the different components of our city, um, whether that's South Atlanta, um, Southwest, Southeast, North Atlanta, uh, downtown, et cetera. That speaks to our attention. It's where our schools are located. And so trying to render the wisest decision here again, complicated, but complex, but necessary to pay attention. The phase two reopening plan, 96 page presentation that was presented to the board last night. We're going to dig into that, I promise. I know our listeners are waiting to get to that. But who were the principals involved in getting this proposal together? So there are several individuals who represent an advisory task force. We have a cohort of principals that we we refer to as our principal feedback group. They have been identified, nominated, or appointed by their principal peers. We have a team that meets with them on a regular basis to share with them what we're thinking and then engage feedback. Our system has been meeting with our principals on a regular basis. That's generally some Friday morning meetings. We recognize that during the pandemic, we had to maintain a frequency in that. There's also a teacher advisory group. So that teacher advisory group has also been critical in giving us constant and consistent feedback. In addition to that, there are uh, unions and representative groups that represent our um, personnel, whether it is our support staff, etc., and voices and conversations with all of them, and we highlighted that last night, are critical. Let's dig into this APS face-to-face model. You're looking at a target date of October 26th, if all goes planned and the science complements what you all think is acceptable, what are we looking at here? You're talking about K through 12 students, first of all, correct? All so K through 12 students? Uh, uh, no. Okay. Well, <laughs> that's, that's why you're here. Let's break it down. A really important clarity. Uh, no, ma'am. Okay. Uh, let's, t- let's talk through that. So there are three distinct proposed options. The first is K through 12, all virtual already that already exists, that's considered option one. And and so the continuation of being virtual with your homeschool is what we reference as option one. The second option two is the opportunity beginning October 26 to phase in a cohort of students starting with elementary and students with disabilities. Um, That elementary cohort uh, captures grades pre-K through fifth grade Uh, We would phase those in 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 waves. And then also uh, our students with disabilities who are representative of our students with low incidences. And so that's not all students all at one time. Okay. Uh, uh, In the latter part of this phase would be what we reference phase three, November 16th, which would then tap into our uh, secondary students, uh, sixth through 12th grade. But then there's a third option that is Atlanta Virtual Academy. Whereas it is also virtual, you are an Atlanta public school student, but you you navigate and, and many have been doing this already through the virtual academy that's been consistent for years. But we allow uh, two virtual options for families who have identified that as the better need for their children. And what's that grade again? Uh, Atlanta Virtual Academy is that's all students. All students. Uh, okay. All levels, yes. 
you talked about students with special needs in low incidence classrooms. So it, for someone listening, it says, well, we'll explain that further. What do you mean by that? Yep. And so we have a cohort of students for whom their IEP, their needs um, would allow for us to provide very specific services, uh, autism on, on the spectrum in that regard. Uh, some families received a services from GNET. And I know you're like, so what is that? So that families would know, um, if they know if they, if they are in receipt of those services. We have um, a high number, um, but I don't want to say high, but a fair number of students who are identified as students with disabilities, but their IEPs may not be um, uh, as demanding or as complex as others. And we recognize that in some of those, in some of those incidents, instances, rather, a virtual is simply not uh, the best level of connectivity for them. Will parents be allowed to opt in and out of these options? That's not an ideal scenario. So let's talk about parent declaration. Mm -hmm. uh, currently, all of our parents in Atlanta public schools should be in receipt of, as of last, the beginning of last week, a parent declaration uh, form that was electronically submitted. So parents, if you're listening and you have not received that, by all means, please contact your school or you can access that by our district website on that homepage. Um, having said that, those options that I just shared, we're asking parents to commit to that option until the end of this semester, which would take us into January to stay committed. So if you choose Atlanta Virtual Academy, which was option three, we're asking you to do AVA until the close of the uh, semester. And you also have the option to do it for the entire school year. If you go into option two, and that's the face-to-face -face approach, remember that's great band specific. And mm -hmm. so it really should be grounded in a need uh, around that, that being the best scenario for the student uh, and for their need for learning. We're asking that in doing so that they could commit to that. But we also recognize that circumstances can occur that's simply our ask. And then finally, option one, which is the virtual at your site, at your school-based um, site. We've been doing that. They would be able to continue that until the uh, end of this semester as well. In either case, we're asking that they stay committed. That's that declaration. And the deadline for that is October 12th to get it completed. And what if parents have not completed that declaration? Yes. Then by default, they fall into the virtual, uh, they would fall into our virtual category. And so it is important. And if you have multiple children, a household with four kids, and you know that three of your children are actually saying, hey, mom, I feel I'd prefer to continue virtual. It's been working. You can do that. But your fourth child could have a hearing impairment, fall into the low incidence category. And then for that specific child, you would want to, if, if, if that's a need and you feel safe about that consider that option. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with APS Superintendent Dr. Lisa Herring, and we're talking about the district's phase two reopening plan that would include in-class instruction later this month. And of course, as always, WAB's broadcast license is held by the Atlanta Board of Education. I know we're short on time, and I appreciate you taking this time, Dr. Herring, but what should parents expect when their kids are in the building if they opt to come back in? What are they going to see in the classroom? We'll educators be wearing masks? Will students be required to wear a mask? Great question. And I want to be really clear about this, Rose. It is not the same environment that we are used to. It is a highly controlled and highly managed and monitored environment. Yes, masks are absolutely required for every 
every person in the building, teachers and staff and, and students. In addition to that, very, very low mobility. Uh, they would be contained inside of their classroom, uh, even with eating and lunch that would be within the classroom. There would be uh, 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 monitored back and forth uh, in, in cohort groups or in small numbers too. Uh, the restroom. We're not using cafeterias. Uh, we are monitoring um, exchange in the hallway. In addition to that, uh, outdoor activity, uh, whereas they could exit the building for a, 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 what we would say PE or, or recess, it is not um, recommended that playground equipment would be in use. That's a different type of engagement. It is not the same. And so we really are asking that they are thoughtful around saying this is an option to consider. We must have those levels of, um, of protocols in place in order for this to uh, also be executed and also social distancing. In addition to the mandated use of hand sanitizer, and we've also created in that same plan two days uh, on and then a, a Wednesday where there is no physical engagement in the building and then the next two uh, being back in so that we can do, do deep cleaning as well. We've talked about the options for parents and students. Let's talk about the educators. What are the options for them? Do they have options in this? So we've been very um, uh, consistent in Atlanta Public Schools and thinking about the opportunity to provide telework. Uh, we've, uh, we've not um, really um, we've not released any employees relative to any type of compromising uh, situation or circumstance. Um, when we make the decision to start to move into a face-to-face -face environment, uh, schools and our HR department have asked for uh, staff starting today uh, and moving into this week, and they will continue with this opportunity to identify their ability to return to work. If they are unable to do so, uh, we do ask that they complete uh, the appropriate paperwork for us to allow for that for consideration. And then we will take that data in complement with the data that says it, declaration of intent to do the appropriate assignment for us to execute uh, a teaching and learning. And what about on the buses? Will bus monitors, will they be responsible for making sure the students keep their mask on? You can't socially distance on a school bus. I mean, you could, but you'd only have maybe eight kids on the bus. Correct. So we are very clear around that. And so that's another household choice. Again, that's why if you're considering that need, all of these things need to be considered. There are bus monitors um, within Atlanta public schools and masks are required. Even the way that we enter and go from the rear to move them to the front to seat students will, will be, will be uh, a necessity in addition to disinfecting, but we're not taking temperatures upon entry, but we are taking temperatures upon entry into the school building. We are encouraging parents to consider their own transportation if this is a need for them to be face-to-face. -face. When we started this conversation, I asked you about outside influences. I asked you about pressure to reopen the schools. There are two parent groups, one with an online petition, parent groups with billboards, and all of this has conjured up narratives about equity and race and socioeconomic differences. That is now playing into this conversation. And last night, even at the school board meeting, I believe that school board member Cynthia Briscoe Brown, in a heartfelt plea, talked about divisiveness within this community, the APS community. How do you navigate through all of that that's now playing into this? What do you make of this? Well, as the leader, um, I think that there are several things that must be said. Uh, and I said some of that at the beginning. I recognize the responsibility to be aware of and be responsive to uh, the voices that are on different sides of the field. But you spoke about something really important, and that is equity. 
And equity isn't necessarily everybody getting the exact same thing, but everyone getting what they need. And then the conversation at the dais last night, it shifted to a conversation around recognizing that we are asking families to be responsible about considering what their child needs. And we, you know, we've moved from choice to need in terms of certainly their options by default options give us choices but when you're making a, a decision in a during a global pandemic around the health and wellness and well-being of the teachers and and our students we also recognize regardless of the format we are losing them those are the children that we know we need to provide every uh, level of support possible there are households for whom um, regardless of the decision children are going to get everything that they need and then there are households that are struggling to make certain that they get what they need. Mm -hmm. And as a school system during a global pandemic, when we have to make decisions that are that are also aligned with best practices with health and our expertise as education, it is just mission critical. And as a parent and as a person that we think about what we really can um, be able to do during this season of uncertainty to ensure that our children are well, if that means that we know that they can be at home, that that can be considered because we're gonna provide resources for a successful virtual experience. But if they truly need to be inside of the brick and mortar, that we've thought about that because we do have to manage and control that environment in a way that um, not only do our students and staff get and have what they need, but that it's done so safely. Then why not just wait till the end of this academic semester and start it in the spring? Well, here's the thing. Um, we're, con we're continuing to monitor the health data, Rose. If we start to trend in, a unfavorable, uh, in a, an unfavorable direction, that's not a question. Uh, that won't be a question. And so that's why this is, a, this is one of the most unique seasons of not just my profession, but of the profession for all of us. Um, we are monitoring to make certain that as we render a decision to move forward, it's at the right time. And if it's not, that's exactly what we'll have to do. And finally, what is the deadline for you, as far as you're concerned, for the district to have a final decision? October 26th is not that far away. No, ma'am, it's not. And we knew that forthcoming, but we knew that back in July as well. But we will have gone nine weeks. We're going to look at the October 16th uh, health data to make some um, more informed decisions around next steps, the 16th of October. Dr. Lisa Herring, superintendent of the Atlanta Public Schools, thank you for taking the time as always. I thank you. Appreciate it. And of course, as always, WAB's broadcast license is held by the Atlanta Board of Education. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. It was 2017, in fact, May 23rd, when then-CIA Director John Brennan testified before the House Intelligence Committee Russia Investigation Task Force. Well, we all know what it was about. It was regarding Russia interfering in the 2016 presidential election. Take a listen. Did you find direct evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign 
and Putin in Moscow while you were there? Mr. Rooney, I, I never was an FBI agent. I never was a prosecutor. So I really don't do evidence. I do intelligence throughout the course of my, of my career. As an intelligence professional, uh, what we try to do is to make sure that we provide all relevant information to uh, the Bureau if there is an investigation underway that they are looking into criminal activity. As I mentioned in my opening statement, I was convinced uh, in the summer that the Russians were trying to interfere in the election. And they were very aggressive. They had, it was a multifaceted effort. And I wanted to make sure that we were able to expose as much of that as possible. But was there intelligence that said that the Trump campaign was colluding with Moscow during their campaign? There was intelligence that the Russian intelligence services were actively involved in this effort. And having been involved in many counterintelligence cases in the past, I know what the Russians try to do. They try to suborn individuals. And they try to get individuals, including U.S. persons, to act on their behalf either wittingly or unwittingly. Now, also in 2017, as Donald Trump was officially taking office, even though knowing that then-president-elect Donald Trump would have a new director, John Brennan stepped down from the post. Now, to call Brennan's relationship with the Trump administration and specifically President Trump strained, well, that's a mild descriptor. But there's more of that, as well as insight into who John Brennan is and, of course, what and who still exist as a national security risk to the United States. It's all detailed in a memoir, Undaunted, my fight against America's enemies at home and abroad. John Brennan will be in conversation virtually presented by the Atlanta History Center and Acapella Books tonight at 7 p.m. But before then, John Brennan joins me now. Welcome to the program, sir. Thank you, Rose. I appreciate the invitation. Before we dig into Undaunted, do you think folks really understand the role of the Central Intelligence Agency or so much is made in what we see in the movies? Do you think folks really understand? No, I, I don't think they do. And that's one of the reasons why I decided to write this book, to provide Americans across this great country of ours a better understanding uh, into the world of intelligence and national security. Mm-hmm. I had the great good fortune for over 33 years to be involved in national security matters. And so with this memoir, I'm hoping to give a better, uh, um, ins- better insight into what intelligence involves and what uh, our fellow citizens are doing on behalf of our safety and security. And what I'm trying to do also with the memoir is to encourage young Americans to give serious consideration to pursuing a career in intelligence, national security, or diplomacy, or law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Um, We really need the best and brightest of the young Americans to contribute to this country's safety and security particularly at a time when we have some very significant challenges uh, to to uh, our future security and prosperity. Let's talk about obviously a big date that's coming up November 3rd. How concerned are you that something is looming either in the outcome of the presidential election or any other threats to the voting process on that day? You've been very outspoken. Yes, I, I have been. Um, I'm very concerned uh, about the opportunities that our adversaries see uh, to exploit our election seasons by pushing out into social media and other forms of information dissemination um, a a lot of propaganda and information that Mm -hmm. really misleads uh, the American public and, and misrepresents the facts. And Russia has some very, very uh, sophisticated uh, capabilities in that cyber realm. And I knew firsthand uh, from the 2016 election 
that the Russians uh, are quite adept at using social media to misrepresent themselves uh, as Americans. And um, it, it clearly between now and the election, I think the Russians are going to go into overdrive to, to do more of that. Other countries probably will as well, mm-hmm. you know, the Chinese or the Iranians or others. But uh, this is something that I think we have to grapple with, uh, not just during this election season, but also future elections as well. And that is at the core of also in Undaunted. Now, it took some time, but after finally being provided access to your daily calendar and other documents, heavily redacted, I should note, the CIA did not give you access to a lot of the agency records that you wanted. Um, you feel this was probably a direct order from the White House. These are, are documents that you needed, that you wanted in order to help write this memoir. But it took some time to get whatever you could get. Yes, all previous directors who decided to write memoirs and to contribute to the historical record were granted full and timely access to their classified records uh, from their time as director. Uh, I made the same type of request, but was denied that. And I was denied it uh, by the White House that basically directed the CIA not to share any classified information with me. And so I did receive heavily redacted copies of my schedule and daybook, but extracted from that was any type of information that the agency deemed classified, such as even the the fact of a phone call that I might have had with one of my foreign counterparts. Mm-hmm. So um, it's uh, quite uh, evident that, again, Donald Trump and the White House have, have tried to suppress uh, my, uh, my voice, uh, I think as a result of some of my outspokenness and criticisms of Donald Trump. That being the case, specific retelling of events and who said what and who did what in this book, is this mostly then from memory? Well, uh, yes, I, I I remained undaunted in my literary journey, <laughs> yeah. uh, despite the White House obstacles that were put in front of me. Uh, yes, it was from, from memory, but also I had uh, conversations with former colleagues who are no longer at the CIA or in the government uh, that allowed me to uh, reconstruct uh, a lot of the um, the events, uh, meetings, and uh, happenings uh, during my, my career. But many of these events were really quite historic. And so they are indelibly etched in my memory. And so uh, I was able, I think, to, uh, again, from, from my recollections and from conversations with others, try to depict uh, as accurately as I poss- possibly could uh, what transpired uh, during uh, my the course of my, my career, which started in 1980 when I first joined the CIA and then ended in January of 2017 when I gave up the position of CIA director. You take the reader through many events, through some meetings, in particular that first meeting with then-President-elect Donald Trump. You make it very clear in the book early on that you've never been, been a fan of Donald Trump. You write... Quote, over the years, I've heard and read many stories of Trump's reliance on intimidation, untruth, ruthless litigation, bankruptcy laws. You go on to say that uh, these were business ventures to achieve some measure of financial wealth. When you take the reader back to that first meeting with President Donald Trump, did you know then, uh, Mr. Brennan, that the next four years were going to be something under his administration and whatever that something is? Well, yes, I I was very worried that um, the uh, Electoral College 
had uh, decided, determined that uh, Donald Trump would be the president of the United States. And I knew from having watched him for many years, uh, and he was a very uh, accomplished uh, entertainer with his uh, television show. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, I think he also did a, uh, acquire a degree of financial wealth based on some of his business ventures and business practices, which I think were, uh, many of them were unethical, unprincipled, but uh, so he was a, a known commodity, but I saw that he had none of the experience or the temperament or the understanding of domestic and international issues that really are required for someone to lead this country. So I was I was worried from the very beginning. I was hoping that Donald Trump was going to change his stripes and uh, become a much more um, serious uh, person mm -hmm. from the standpoint of um, using intelligence and uh, changing some of his ways because of the solemn responsibilities of the presidency. But now we have nearly four years of a track record where I think Donald Trump has continued to propagate uh, dishonesty, uh, lies, um, and misrepresenting the facts, uh, which is very, very unfortunate that that is coming out of somebody who is uh, the, the resident in the Oval Office. The Trump versus the CIA battle began even before Mr. Trump was sworn in. He insulted the CIA for its initial briefing on Russia, and he said he didn't need the agency's daily presidential briefings. That, in the book, as you write, unheard of for a president. It is. And first of all, it sends a, a very, very demoralizing signal to the women and men of CIA and the rest of the intelligence and law enforcement communities that he really doesn't care about the work and the sacrifices that they make on a daily basis, uh, frequently putting themselves at, at great risk. Um, but more fundamentally, it, it shows that Donald Trump is not going to use uh, the intelligence, the information, the expertise the experience uh, of uh, individuals, whether they be intelligence professionals or mm -hmm. uh, FBI agents, or as we see most recently and quite tragically, medical doctors and scientists. Uh, Donald Trump believes that he knows more about everything than anyone else. And that is a very, very dangerous attitude for anybody who is in charge of a government uh, to have. Matter of fact, in that word dangerous, you know, I'm going to quote you here. You wrote after that first meeting with then President-elect Donald Trump and his own advisors and, and would-be appointees. You write, quote, more honestly, I left with a dark feeling that our country was entering what would be a very painful and dangerous chapter of its history. Now and well into coming to the end of his first term, what could be a first term, uh, Donald Trump has been dangerous to the democracy of this nation. Your lens? Yeah, yeah. I, I wish my my forecast was not as accurate, but I, I do believe those ominous feelings that I had when I left Trump Tower in early January 2017. I, I wish that they had never come to to be in terms of what the reality has been for nearly four years. But I think on the domestic front, uh, Donald Trump certainly has fueled divisions and polarization within this country. He continues to just disregard uh, norms and standards that I think are critically important for a, a country such as ours that adheres to the rule of law. He also has sent, I think, very worrisome signals to our allies and partners around the globe 
that the United States that they knew and relied on basically for the last 75 years to be the leader of the free world and to be the spokesperson and, and defender of human rights and liberties around the globe, that that's not the same United States now when you have a Donald Trump who keeps talking about America first, America first, and seems to almost disregard the, the interests of anyone who doesn't support him or like him, uh, either here in, in this country or around the globe. And so I, I do think that this has been a very unfortunate chapter of our history. I want to shift for a moment because on that day back in 2017, because that's the day also you buried your father. Uh, tell me a little bit about Owen Brennan. Uh, well, I think we are all products of our upbringing. And I was exceptionally fortunate to be the son of Owen and Dorothy Brennan, my parents that really tried to instill in me at a very early age uh, the difference between right and wrong and to give me a, a moral compass, a North Star that emphasized integrity and honesty as well as public service. Uh, Owen uh, Brennan, my father, was uh, an immigrant uh, from Ireland. He came to this country when he was 28 years old mm -hmm. and really impressed upon my brother, sister, and myself that uh, we need to give back to this wonderful country of ours and never take for granted that we are American citizens. You know, he came to this country. He, he tried to reach our shores in order to have a better life for himself and, and to uh, have a family. And so uh, I talk in that first chapter that uh, January 6th, uh, that day, was the day that I briefed Trump at Trump Tower, but also it was the day that I joined my family across the Hudson River in New Jersey uh, at the wake of my father, who had passed away the earlier that week before um, and when he was uh, nearly 97 years old. Uh, so both my mother and father were really uh, critically important uh, individuals in my life and, and helped shape uh, who I am. In fact, you write in the Brennan household, faith, school, and sports had to be accompanied by some type of part-time job if movies, baseball cards, ice cream, and other childhood delights were to be had. Um, but also, I think something interesting that our, our listeners, and I don't want to give away too much, but John Brennan, you had considered entering the seminarian and you wanted to become Pope. <laughs> Yes, Pope John something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I went. I was brought up in a very uh, religious household, uh, Catholic faith, and I went to Catholic elementary school and high school. And throughout my elementary school years, I had always planned to become a priest. I thought that was the the best way to find an eternal reward in heaven. And when I was very young, I didn't want to just be a priest. I wanted to be the first American pope. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it was Pope John the Twenty Third at this time, and so I, maybe it was having a namesake in the Vatican that really encouraged me <laughs> along that path. And I was hoping that I was going to be able to use my middle name Owen, which is my father's name, mm -hmm. uh, to be uh, Pope Owen the First. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, once I reached high school, you know, I started to pursue other interests. The voice you hear is former CIA director John Brennan, and we're talking about his new memoir, Undaunted. Now we'll take a break, and when we come back, we'll finish the conversation. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Let's return now to my conversation with former CIA Director John Brennan. Mr. Brennan, I have to admit that my jaw dropped when I read that you saw it job openings in the New York Times for the CIA? 
Yeah, this, the CIA advertises <laughs> in many different places. And back then, I was taking the bus over to New York City because I was a commuter student at Fordham University in the mm-hmm. Bronx, New York. And I saw this advertisement. I said, well, you know, what the heck? I'll send in what was then a very you know brief resume. Um, and uh, the CIA took a, a, a gamble on me. Mm-hmm. And what I'm trying to do in this memoir by giving a little bit of my background and my youth is that, you know, I grew up as any other, you know, kid in... Uh, New Jersey at the time, uh, came from a modest household, uh, didn't know what I was going to do uh, with my my life and my career. Uh, and I, uh, I I tried to take advantage of the opportunities that came my way. This country, this great country of ours is a land of opportunity. And so again, I'm trying to encourage uh, younger Americans uh, to look at the opportunities that uh, might be in their future at, at CIA or somewhere else. But uh, it, sometimes it just takes uh, seeing a, a job advertisement mm-hmm. or hearing about something and then going after that. And I've always encouraged young CIA officers to, you know, take advantage of those opportunities that come their way. And from that first day on the job back in 1980 and then the many decades that followed. But I want to fast forward to September 11th, 2001. And you write, quote, as soon as the second plane hit, I suspect that virtually everyone at the CIA immediately concluded that al-Qaeda was responsible. In the months leading up to the attack, there had been a steadily increased drumbeat of reporting about al-Qaeda's plans to carry out a major terrorist attack against the United States. But the crucial details about where and when the attack would take place were lacking. What were those days and weeks like after that, John Brennan? Yeah, we, we really were at war with Al-Qaeda uh, as soon as those planes hit the World Trade Center and the plane went down in Shanksville and Pentagon was hit. Mm-hmm. And we knew at CIA that Al-Qaeda was planning some you know, large-scale attack, but uh, unfortunately we weren't able to stop it in advance. But we worked very hard to stop the follow-on attacks and Al-Qaeda did have follow-on attack plans very much uh, um, pending. Uh, they had a plan to carry out a series of uh, airplane attacks uh, similarly to what happened in 9-11 against the west coast of the United States. They were going to um, have them fly out of Southeast Asia. And because of some very, very good work by CIA, as well as our U.S. counterparts and foreign liaison partners, we were able to uncover those plans and stop them before they took place. But it was an all-hands-on-deck approach. There were a lot of things that were happening at that time. Uh, if if you recall, we had uh, challenges uh, certainly here in the Washington, D.C. area mm-hmm. with anthrax attacks as well mm-hmm. as with the Washington sniper. And so we were wondering whether or not al-Qaeda was um, undertaking a multifaceted attack plan. Uh, and the CIA and FBI and others really worked very hard to protect uh, American citizens. And I think we're very successful because if you ask people back in September 11, 2001, if uh, there were going to be follow-on attacks, I think most people would have said yes. But uh, thankfully, here in the homeland at least, we were able to to stop those attacks. You say more attacks would have occurred at the hands of al-Qaeda if not for the work of CIA officers around the world. Well, that's absolutely right. And that's why I think, going back to one of your other questions, I, I don't think that the average American has as full of an appreciation as they should about uh, the work of the CIA, uh, the accomplishments, much of it because of the required secrecy that goes along with intelligence work. But, uh, you know, the CIA and FBI and NSA and others, they really do great, great things on behalf of the American public. And 
I guess that's why uh, my my temper sometimes gets the better of me when I lash out at Donald Trump because he he denigrates the work, the professionalism, the integrity of those officers, and uh, overwhelmingly uh, they are true professionals and dedicated to the safety and security of all Americans. I want to hit on something that you talked about in terms of the secrecy of the work and then how sometimes that might be in direct conflict with your own morality as it relates to practices and policies of the CIA. I'm going now in terms of the scrutiny regarding the torture of prisoners. What do you make? What did you make of all that? And it still continues to to dog you to this day, depending on whom you ask. At, at, yeah, at any moment, you, are you grappling with this because of what you just, obviously because of what you just told me about how you were raised and with your, your parents and what they instilled in you and, and the Christian values as well? I think throughout my career, I had to ask myself whether the things that I was asked to do as well as what the CIA was doing was consistent with my values and my ethics and principles. The CIA's detention interrogation program that you refer to, that mm-hmm. some people refer to as torture, This was a program that was duly authorized by the President of the United States, which all covert action that CIA carries out must be. It also was deemed lawful by the highest legal advisory body in the executive branch, which is the Office of Legal Counsel and Department of Justice. It was also briefed to the Congressional Committees of Jurisdiction, the Intelligence Oversight Committees, and the leadership of Congress. So it had all of the features and attributes of a legitimate lawful program that the CIA then was obligated to carry out. Now, again, we were in the midst of the aftermath of 9-11 while the embers of the World Trade Centers were still burning and smoldering. Um, And so there was an effort on the part of the government to do everything possible to prevent a recurrence of that attack. And so looking back on it now, and even then, I had real reservations and and objections to it. The the use of the enhanced interrogation techniques, the waterboarding and some other things. I was not in a chain of command, and uh, fortunately, I did not have to make some very difficult decisions. But the people who made the decisions to um, authorize and implement that program were really quite concerned that al-Qaeda, which was looking at various weapons of mass destruction, chemical, biological, and nuclear, Mm -hmm. they really were concerned that the United States homeland was going to be devastated by even a more uh, horrific attack. And so... You know, I don't want to put my moral uh, calculus uh, against what others had to do or decide at that time. But uh, I do not believe that the CIA in particular, given that it had no history of having a detention program, no experience in terms of interrogations, it shouldn't have been put in that position. But CIA frequently is the 911 organization um, that if you don't have a good options on the military front or the diplomatic front, uh, uh, create a covert action program that the CIA will be able to implement fully consistent with the law. And uh, CIA saluted at the time. And although there were a lot of things that um, happened during that program that were not uh, allowable, according to the the four corners of what was approved, Mm -hmm. uh, for the most part, the CIA was carrying out uh, a program, again, that was uh, appropriately authorized uh, by the president and determined to be lawful by the Department of Justice. We've talked about Russia. We just spoke about al-Qaeda. Are those still the, among those threats to this nation to this day through your lens? Whether it be yes. via interfering with the presidential election or actual attacks 
on American citizens here or abroad? Well, I think terrorism is still a, uh, a key concern for U.S. intelligence and law enforcement officials. Uh, Al-Qaeda has been uh, significantly uh, denigrated as a result of the concerted effort over the last couple of decades. They still retain a, a capability, but you have other extremist organizations, uh, the ISIS group, mm-hmm. um, which uh, you know, was ravaged Iraq and Syria, as well as other offshoots and franchises. So we have to be concerned about terrorism. Russia will continue to be, I think, our principal global adversary. Vladimir Putin, you know, considers Russia to be a superpower. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's maybe a superpower from the standpoint of a nuclear arsenal, but it doesn't have the political or economic uh, influence and might of the United States. And therefore, he believes that anything he can do to hurt the United States and damage uh, Washington's uh, standing in the world and domestically, it redounds to the Moscow's benefit. He sees things in sort of zero-sum fashion. China is growing in capability, uh, certainly economically, militarily as well. And uh, we do need to um, address a number of the imbalances uh, in, for example, the trade relationship between Beijing and uh, the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think we have to do it in a, in a smart fashion. Uh, we have to recognize that China is going to be and it re- will remain to be a major global player. So I think we just need to have a, a thoughtful uh, approach to these challenges around the world, not seek out competition, but to recognize that we can, when we need to compete, we will, when we, when we can cooperate, we should, uh, but we need to do it in concert with a lot of our partners and allies around the globe who have similar um, ideals and uh, democratic uh, foundations as, as we do. The very first line in Undaunted is this, quote, this is a memoir that I never expected to write, close quote. So, John Brennan, why'd you write it? Well, uh, two principal reasons. One, uh, again, is to, to give Americans a, a sense of uh, what the intelligence and national security life is like. Uh, and, and by doing so, I'm hoping to encourage more Americans to consider it as a profession and a career, because it is a noble one and one that is essential to this country's security and prosperity. Second reason is that uh, throughout the course of my 33 plus years in government, uh, I have had to deal with a lot of mischaracterizations uh, of uh, CIA's record, uh, misrepresentations of uh, what I did, uh, why I did certain things, and just factual inaccuracies that uh, sometimes are put out purposely and sometimes are put out unintentionally. And so this is my opportunity to try to set the record straight from my perspective I probably am not going to convince you know a lot of my detractors mm-hmm. uh, about the worthiness of some of the things that I engaged in, but um, I also am speaking out against what I think is the abuse of authority on the part of uh, some members of uh, political parties. Um, I, I can understand partisanship. Uh, clearly, uh, the two principal political parties in the United States have different agendas and approaches. And that's fine. But when individuals resort to um, dishonesty and deceit and, again, misrepresentation of the facts, uh, I have a real problem with that because I think the American people, above all, deserve dishonesty from their public officials. And unfortunately, they don't get it as often as they should. So are you saying that Undaunted is really more for the American public as, as opposed to being, I don't know, cathartic for you? <laughs> well, maybe it hits a number of boxes. Uh, but... <laughs> Yeah, I, I wanted to make it readable. Uh, I wanted to give a sense of who I am. Uh, 
I didn't write it for, you know, the, all the academics and national security wonks. I'm hoping that they're going to be able to get, you know, a fair amount out of this book. Uh, but I wanted to, to write it for the average American so that they would, uh, again, have uh, an increased interest in looking at America's role in the world, uh, what the intelligence and national security communities do to try to preserve and strengthen our national security interests, and to make it an enjoyable reading, but also to, uh, at, at different times, to, to call out those that I think uh, fall short, including myself, when mm -hmm. I, I fell short of what I thought were my responsibilities and obligations. Uh, and to, uh, again, have it as a, a memoir that uh, captures uh, the course of, of my life and the, the great privilege I had to work in the government with some terrifically talented and patriotic people. And as a young man, you were labeled by a CIA official, a pretty strong introvert. <laughs> Looking back on that, she says your responses also indicate that you do not seem to have the personal traits that lend themselves to meeting, developing, recruiting, and handling foreign assets. And you said, she had me dead to rights. <laughs> yes. Um, I recognize that in order to recruit uh, foreign assets, sometimes you have to present yourself as somebody you're not uh, because you don't go up to somebody and say, hi, I'm a CIA you know, case officer and I want to recruit you to work on behalf of the, the U.S. government and commit treason against your country. So, you know, there, there were some aspects of it that I recognized that I did not have, I think, the natural inclination to do. And I, I was an introvert uh, when I was much younger. I still consider myself to be that. I tend to be outspoken when it comes to issues that, you know, strike at the heart of, of what I believe in and, and what I have done throughout my career. Uh, but, you know, I wish I wasn't, didn't have to be as outspoken now. I was hoping to ride off into the retirement sunset and just, you know, spend oh, a little more now, time with John Brennan, nobody quietly. does that coming out of Washington. <laughs> you know that. Look, all these books have been written. <laughs> well, I never, I certainly never thought that I'd be speaking out as, as stridently as I have mm -hmm. against a sitting uh, uh, incumbent in the Oval Office. Uh, because, uh, as I said in my book, working for six presidents, uh, three Republicans, three Democrats, I had tremendous respect for all of them. And I didn't always agree with their policies, but they approached the job with great seriousness and uh, recognizing that they had a solemn responsibility to, to protect the American people. I don't see that in Donald Trump. I see somebody who is very self-centered, somebody who has a very personal agenda, and charts every move that he makes uh, according to what he believes is in his best personal and political interests. And to me, that is an abdication of moral and legal responsibility. And, and that's why I'm speaking out so strongly against him. It's called Undaunted, My Fight Against America's Enemies at Home and Abroad. John Brennan will be in conversation virtually, presented by the Atlanta History Center and Acapella Books tonight at 7 p.m. online. So for more, for more information, Visit our friends over at AtlantaHistoryCenter.com. John Brennan, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you so much, Rose. I really enjoyed it. And I appreciate you having read the book. It's clear that you have. <laughs> it's a lot of pages, John Brennan. <laughs> it's a lot of pages. <laughs> yeah, and I had even more to write, but I had to cut back at some point. So. It's a lot of pages. We you. didn't even talk about you being a, an athlete. I wondered if you could play ball still. <laughs> well, as I point out in the book, I have a, a lot of prosthetic joints these days between I, hips and knees, and so I can no longer jump the way I used to. Well, I, join the club. I'm with you on that. Take care, sir. Take care, Joseph. 
That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.